Kedrick Olson is an expert on Norse mythology, as you might have heard on the last podcast we did, but he's also pretty much a straight-up modern wizard. So I wanted to talk to him about the other aspect of his knowledge base, which involves the magical realms, and particularly the classification of entities in these magical realms. Now, of course, throughout the conversation, I'm very careful to be aware that these entities could just be projections of our own mind. So as you listen, be mindful that what we're talking about could be reality or it could be just ideas generated from our own self. But either way, this conversation is highly illuminating and I think you'll find incredible value. So enjoy this podcast with Kedrick Olson. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Onnit. And I want to spend this time talking about the four different types of alpha brain that Onnit is currently offering. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, Alpha Brain was on its flagship. It was the revolutionary nootropic formula tested twice in double-blind clinical trials and shown to be effective in helping improve focus and general cognitive function. So whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's studying or podcasting, it's something that you can put in your tool belt to help elevate your consciousness. But now we have four different iterations. And of course, there's the original capsuled Alpha Brain. And one of the advantages that I love about the original formula is the inclusion of cat's claw. Cat's claw is really long-term, highly neuroprotective. And so it's a very well-rounded brain formula. And then there's the instantized version, which comes in these little packets that are delicious that you can mix in water. Now I typically bring those when I travel and you have the option. You can either drink it fast and get the full dose of original alpha brain immediately, or drink it slow if you have a longer, more drawn out day where you wanna spread the effects out over an hour, two hours, just mix it in your water bottle. And again, it tastes awesome, so that's also an advantage. Then there's the Alpha Brain ready to drink shots. And you just rip the cap and drink the Alpha Brain, and it has a slight modification to the formula in that it includes a little bit of caffeine. And caffeine and Alpha Brain pair brilliantly together. So this is going to pick up your energy as well as giving you the cholinergic boost that Alpha Brain is known for. And then there's the Cadillac, which is Alpha Brain Black Label. Alpha Brain Black Label has a couple different advantages. One is a full dose of mecunipurians, which increases and up-levels the availability of dopamine in the brain, which is great for modulating your mood into a much more positive state. Then there's a full, full dose of phosphatidylserine, which has a host of different benefits. Of course, there's the nutritional mushroom lion's mane and a variety of different ingredients that we put together. It took us over 10 years to develop a formula that was worthy of carrying the Alpha Brain name and being significantly different. And we did it with Alpha Brain Black Label. So that's a brief explanation of the four different types of Alpha Brain. So if you're interested, check it out. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and save 10% on all of the different alpha brains. Next up, we have Magic Spoon. Now, when I was a kid growing up, I used to eat Fruit Loops. I ate Fruit Loops all the time and watch cartoons. And then, of course, you get a little older and you realize you can't eat Fruit Loops. That's all packed with sugar and it's not good for you. So actually, when I was at Onnit, I had the idea like, man, it would be cool to make a cereal that tasted like Fruit Loops, but didn't have all of that sugar. Now, of course, you can't make anything taste identically like Fruit Loops, but has the same idea and has the same concept behind some of these 
great cereals that taste delicious that we remember nostalgically as kids. And, you know, maybe nowadays I'd mix it with almond milk. And that's actually what I do with Magic Spoon is Magic Spoon and almond milk replaces my Fruit Loops and low-fat milk like I used to back in the day. So what Magic Spoon is, is it's the flavor and the crunch of all of these nostalgic cereals done in their own way, but with a whole different nutritional profile. So ultimately, if you're interested in Magic Spoon, you can get them as a variety pack. There's four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. The pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, which is huge because of course it's super important to have protein first thing in the morning, and only four net grams of carbs. There's only 140 calories per serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and of course, low-carb. So this is a super good option whether you have kids or you just want to be a kid. And Magic Spoon is confident in their product and they're confident that you're going to like it. There's a 100% happiness guarantee. So if for whatever reason you don't like it, then just let them know and you'll get your money back. So go to magicspoon.com slash Aubrey to get your variety pack. And if you use the promo code Aubrey at checkout, you'll save $5 at your order. Once again, magicspoon.com slash Aubrey and save $5 off your variety pack order. So thank you for Magic Spoon for creating this cereal and also for sponsoring this episode. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Kadrick Olson. Kadrick, good to have you back, brother. Hey, man, it's great to be back. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that's a constant topic of conversation, especially for people in the psychedelic realms, is are the entities that we encounter, are they real? Is there some outside force that's influencing us? Or is this an inner projection of our own thought forms, our own emotions, that we're actually just understanding, potentially anthropomorphizing or mythologizing? And then understanding them in a different way. And perhaps are they both at the same time? And this is this classic question of inner versus outer worlds that we're encountering. And many different traditions have different beliefs. But you've dove headfirst into this, just like you did Norse mythology. And so I wanted to have this conversation with you. Absolutely. And you're right. It's all of the above. There are beings that are extant for millennia that come from alternate realities, different places, different times, as well as we tend to underestimate the creative capacity of humanity. We are creating these things all the time. So the question is, are they real? Are they not? Well, the answer is it's all in your head and that makes it just as real because they're out there. They're influencing our thoughts and we have some internal agreement allowing them to do that. Mm. Yeah, it's, I think a part of the problem is, is that people think that a mind is confined to our skull, right? Like our mind is not confined to our skull. Our mind extends all the way to capital M mind, which is just another word and another aspect, dimensional reality of what you could call God, right? Like it goes all the way, you know? So in some way, when we actually even invent or i think we invent something in our brain we're actually creating something in a in a dimensional reality that's part of the cosmological ontology of the divine that's absolutely true the brain is just a linear receptor of consciousness but the whole universe is consciousness and it exists on many different layers many different you know i guess the key word today is densities consciousness exists yeah. in little layers of density and 
human linear rational processing is just one layer of density, but there's like a, a density just right above us. We can almost think of it as not quite etheric, not quite astral, but it's a layer where we have almost like sandbox-like abilities, where we can just play with things, create things, make things happen. Yet the conscious rational receptor, the linear receptor of consciousness can't perceive that. They think it's, well, it's just something out there. It's not real. And everything I'm feeling is me. Well, yeah, it is you because you're open to receiving it and accepting it, but it's also an external influence. And interestingly enough, this is just the way the universe is built. It's just the natural process of everything. Yeah, this is, I mean, there's a few fundamental questions. And as I've tried, I've been in deep contemplation about this. The fundamental questions, as I see them, there are four questions. Questions are, who am I? Where am I? What do I want? And how do I do it? <laughs> like those are the those are the four basic questions and both of those we could spend hours and i may even you know spend books just trying to explore these different subjects because they're massive big questions and part of what we're talking about today is just our own efforts to understand the where question which actually is influenced by the who question because to actually you have to understand both a little bit and we've talked a little bit about the mind's ability and not ability, it's just innate nature as it's connected to the where, which is this, you know, this universal reality that we're in, this multidimensional reality. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to explore this where a little bit more and help people understand because there's a wide range of beliefs. I tend to be more on the, let's not give too much credence and belief to these other external structures and and forms and entities let's just assume that they're all within me and that way i can regulate myself and it's a little less scary however i've found myself in positions where i'm like fuck this is not me and i need to do something about this you know i found myself in one of those situations recently and i detest it i will tell you i will tell you kadrick i do not like entering those magical realms i much prefer to be in the mystical realm where it's like i am a being of love and there's nothing here that's going to fuck with me, right? Like that is, that is yeah. my predilection. That is my preference. Like I like that realm a lot more than the magical realm where there's external forces that you can feel that you need to do something. Clear, you know, move the energy, alchemize, create boundaries, things like that. But I have occasionally, from my own personal experience, and you guys can all think I'm a fucking kook, but from my own personal experience, I've found myself... <laughs> occasionally in these magical spaces where i'm like fuck like and then you know have to really listen to my guidance and some wisdom from some of my teachers and uh and figure out what to do and i'm happy to tell that story but uh but yeah that's just to kind of give the the landscape of where i'm at because i think it is it is important to understand that there can be influences but also i've seen people who've gone too far down that road and think that every different thought or emotion or scary thing that's coming from them is coming from the outside and they're in constant war and conflict with some external force when i'm like listen you just need to reconcile your own fears and find a place of love within you and you know again as i said it, it's probably neither one nor the other i just tend to prefer the the mystical rather than the magical completely understandable and when i'm doing my paranormal work i've 
enumerated a list of rules for interacting with the paranormal. And with what you were describing, two of them fit appropriately. The first one, the biggest key one, is similarities attract and perpetuate. Whatever you've got going on inside your emotional state, your thought patterns, your belief patterns is going to draw to you the entities, the beings, the people, the situations, whatever that is in alignment with whatever your state is. So if you have a moment of fear, a moment of trepidation, a moment of like concern and worry, you're going to transmit a bit of that energy out there. So, by the way, I am one of those fucking gooks out there so i love being in that range i think it's great i am totally wacky wacky woo woo out there you know and that's where my footing is and so that's where i help people when something goes a little bit strange i remind them similarities attract and perpetuate as being human we're going to have those moments where we're prone to aggression or hostility where we're going to forget the love we're going to forget that connection that's a normal part of being human beings but we can also develop ourselves to the place where you can be aware of that shift, where you can go, oh, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm feeling. Is that really me? Okay. It doesn't matter if it is me or isn't me. I have control over the way I feel. I have mm. control over the way I think. So I'm choosing to go back to the love state. I'm choosing to go back to flow state or a sense of awe and wonder. So that way, what you're drawing to you is in alignment with you. Now, the second rule is you are in charge of your energetic environment and that energetic environment does come from within. So if you're finding things are a little bit strange, if you're under that constant attack and under that constant influence, which I do have clients that are that way, it begins by shifting, by doing your inner spiritual work, by doing your inner connections, uh, even going so far as to making sure you're eating right, you're getting good exercise because you got to take care of the body too. You got to take care of the mind, the body, the heart, all of it in this process. And the analogy that I give is, let's say that energetic environment that you're in is like a glass of water and you can't dump out the water because it's energy. You just, you know, you can't dump out your energy out of your body. You can't dump out the energy of your home, but that water may not be the best environment that you want, but that's that natural environment. When you are doing your spiritual work, when you're doing that inner work and that inner processing, you now have a bottle of wine and you're slowly filling that glass with wine. And over time, the more you pour that wine into the water, you're displacing that water. And so you continue with your practice. Consistency and persistence is key to this. You continue to pour that wine in there, displacing that water. And soon enough, you've got a body filled with this higher level energy. You've got a home filled with this higher level energy. And remember, similarities attract and perpetuate. You've got that higher level energy inside, outside. You've got this interruptive processing going inside. And those influences will no longer be an influence because you've taken control over yourself and your environment just by doing your inner work. I love that analogy that you used about the wine because wine for the Sufi mystics and the Sufi poets has always been representative of the sweet wine of the divine. And we have that ability to pour that sweet wine into our energetic body and into our rooms and into our homes and into our encounters and interactions. And I often wonder too, you know, there's a lot of basic core kind of magical practices like smudging, for example, use of sage or Palo Santo, or one of my teachers, Maestro Orlando, he uses cinnamon in, in some different magical rituals. And the interesting thing is I wonder if the plants, and again, I think this is one of those yes and questions. It's a both question. 
I wonder if it's actually the property of the sage or the property of the sweetgrass or the property of the palo santo or whether it's actually just the belief that is attached to the scent that is actually changing the belief field and it really could be anything i mean it could be you know any type of incense anything that smelled decent you know it could be campfire wood like whatever it could be but if you believed it you know then it was actually the belief that was carrying the carrying and changing the field of resonance around around a person and and this is just a way to kind of concretize it to see the smoke to help your belief actually do its job so i think it's you know my feeling is that it's a little bit of both that these plants do have a spirit and the spirit does have properties but a lot of what we're doing is just changing our belief field absolutely what you're describing is what i call the seeing believing dynamic is that if you completely don't believe in any of this stuff, you may or may not be under its influence and you don't care, you're shutting it down. So if you don't believe Palo Santo works, you don't believe sage works, it's never gonna work. But if you get out the sage and you smudge a little bit, you get out the Palo Santo, you, you get all of the stuff out there, right? It has a little bit of that property that works a bit because we're opening up our disbelief center just to say, hey, maybe, let's see. The effect of the plant opens that door a little bit. Then we can see and experience a shift and we're like, oh, this is real. This is working. Mm -hmm. And then the more we see it, the more we believe it. The more we believe it, the more we're going to see it. The more we're seeing it, the more we believe it. And soon that door is wide open and we're like, of course, this is how the world works. This is the whole (laughs) natural process. Of course, that's just how it is because it's no longer a belief. It's just now how you know things work. And so... When I work with people to clear their houses, sure, the sage and the Palo Santo, incense made of like frankincense, mirror, and sandalwood are great. Dragon's blood is a great like sandblaster for energy for mm-hmm. a room, but it's just a starter. It's just kind of like training wheels. I'd rather people learn to get in tune with their own energy and learn to make that energy fill up in them and surround them and to really help influence their own environment from their internal place. Just so that one day comes along, they don't have that smudge stick. What are they going to do? Well, it was always me the entire time doing it. So I don't need that smudge stick. Mm. At the same time, I've seen the, the reverse happen. I had neighbors once who moved out and their home was pretty hostile. It was pretty scary to listen to what was going on to that house. So there was some hostile energy built up in there. Some people moved in right after them who were aware of the hostile energy, but they're going through the house with a smudge stick and some drums, and they're like, get out of here. We get up. You don't belong here. We want you gone. Get, get. So they're hitting that hostile energy with hostile energy, mm. and it's like, you're just amplifying that. Instead yeah, I of- like it. My favorite analogy for that, it's like trying to clean old dog shit with new, fresh dog shit. Exactly. <laughs> Not going to work. Exactly. They weren't aware of the shift that they needed to make of their energy to be peaceful, loving, compassionate, caring, to clear that stuff out instead of hitting it with hostile energy. Yeah. The, uh, such a good, such a good reminder is of that is that every time I've encountered any of these entities or energies, the more you try to fight them, the more they're like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah, baby. Let's go. We're in a fight. That's what I'm fucking built for you know like you better pack a lunch you know and maybe maybe like you are a a master shaman and you can actually win the battle right like maybe you have those those powers you're the gunslinger you're billy the fucking kid 
out there with your with your mapacho like fine like great you can be billy the kid be billy the kid but you're gonna be you're gonna be gunslinging you know your whole your whole magical life and you know ultimately a much better plan in my in my mind is to actually just be able to transmute that by loving those entities and loving those energies and for people who've heard me tell these you know stories of my encounters with dark beings it's always love it's always love that snaps and alchemizes and changes the situation yep you are 100 percent correct on that because if you fight fire with fire you're going to make that fire twice as strong but let's say you are encountering some sort of a hostile entity may or may not be hostile let's put it that way let's say it's late at night, something wacky is going on. You see something move across the room, a dark shape form, a book falls off the shelf. Now you're freaked out, right? Instead of going into a fear state or a hostile aggressive state, go into a state of awe and wonder or even a state of compassion. You know, go, hey, that was really cool. Can you do it again? That was awesome. Or instead of being like, oh my God, what are you going to do to me? You go into, is there a way I can help you? Do you need mm. help of some kind? Because this is the converse to similarities attract and perpetuate. If you have an entity in the room or around you that is trying to negatively influence you in some way, and you do it just like you said, you go with love, you treat them with love, that energy becomes toxic to them. And they're going to back the way the heck off. They're going to be like, nope, nope, nope. I want nothing to do with you. At the same time as what if it is a positive entity? What if it is a higher level entity or just some kid playing in your house? And you don't want to attack that with hostile energy. But if you come at it with that loving, caring, compassionate energy, you're going to build a rapport with that thing that's going to be a positive interaction. So you nailed it exactly right on the head. Hit it with love. Hit it with compassion, mm -hmm. awe and wonder and joy. And that is going to subvert any negative interaction instantly. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, people who are skeptical about this, which I've, of course, I welcome, I welcome that. And also... As far as my understanding of this, of this fundamental laws of how this really works is one of the things that seems to be true is that if you hold a field of skepticism, a field of belief where these things are not possible, it's like an immune system that is preventing these things from actually showing up in your field. You know, so like you're actually projecting this anti-belief field so if you're looking, if you're out there and you're a paranormal investigator, but you're certain that paranormal shit does not occur, you're actually creating a field where it will not occur. Same with, you know, scientific measurements where scientists are trying to disprove things. And it's, it sounds like, oh, that's a good justification, bro. But I actually think it's the reality is that part of this whole game is belief opening up the portal, opening up, thinning the veils between these worlds so that these experiences can exist. And if you have a belief field, it's like a force field that's preventing these different occurrences from happening, then they're less likely to occur. And then the more you open your belief field, the more likely you are to experience, you know, some of these phenomenons. Like I'm sure you have crazy shit going on in your life all the time, you know, because your belief field is wide open, right? You know, whereas yep. somebody else who's just you know, working as a car mechanic, goes home, drinks his Budweiser, like books are not flying off his shelf. You know what I mean? Like nothing, <laughs> nothing weird is happening. And he's like, what are you, what are you guys talking about? You're a bunch of fucking kooks. And so, but, and I think there's a, there's a reason it's like this belief is part of what 
allows the transmission and allows the the porousness of the dimensional realities to to exist. You remember the amazing Randy? No. No, he's a, a guy who was a stage magician who made a career out of debunking psychics and the paranormal. He would invite psychics and mediums into a controlled scientific setting to prove that their abilities were real. And he had a million dollar reward for anybody who could prove that psychic abilities were correct in a scientific setting under controlled conditions with him observing. Now, he absolutely definitely debunked some hoaxers for sure, Mm -hmm. which reinforced his belief that this is all bullshit. It's not happening. But there were numerous psychics and mediums that came into his controlled setting who were thoroughly confused. They failed. Every single one of them failed. But outside of his controlled setting, they are having viable careers. They have hundreds, if not thousands of people that can attest to their accuracy of what they were connecting with and what they were doing. But the moment they get into Randy's controlled setting, they're confused and they failed. And to me, that is proof that Randy himself was psychic. That he had control over that energetic environment because he was dead set adamant. This is not real. It's not happening. You can't do it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he shut down every single one of those people that came into his controlled environment 100% of the time. Yeah, that's uh, that's such an important reframe of this phenomenon of like, how powerful it's just like giving a giving a golf clap to randy like you are a powerful magician my friend your belief is strong and your belief is impermeable and your belief was greater than any of the belief of anybody else that actually came in there because at that point you know it was a battle of beliefs it was a battle of and and somehow you know i imagine if there was the lebron james of psychic abilities perhaps they would be able to overcome randy's belief field but in this case, that being didn't exist, probably because the entire collective belief system is more in support of Randy than in support of what they are doing. So they have a little bit of doubt, whereas Randy was absolute, absolutely certain. You know, absolutely. so he was, he was a powerful being. And he went through that believing seeing cycle. See, none of these people could secede. I'm correct. And then yep, he just gets, it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Yeah, Exactly. And here's the converse to that. I've worked with people, numerous people that have told me they've never had a paranormal experience in their entire life ever because they expect it to be the book flying off the shelf. They expect that disembodied voice to be going, get out. And they don't realize that they're late at night, they're sitting at a red light in their car, and all of a sudden the light shifts to green, and they're wondering why they're still sitting there at the intersection to watch a car blaze through the intersection that would have just totaled them. Mm-hmm. That's a paranormal encounter. Mm-hmm. When you're sitting in your room all alone and you suddenly get that feeling that you're not alone, but then you have these fond memories of your grandmother and it's almost like you could smell her there. You can smell those cookies baking again. And you're like, wow, that's interesting. Easy enough to just explain that away is olfactory memories kicking in and just some sort of biochemistry in the brain reviving those memories. But more than likely, that's just grandma coming in and saying, hey, how you doing? It's giving you that subtle memory. Uh-huh. That's a paranormal experience. It can be very, very super subtle, very beautiful and amazing. And it doesn't have to be, you know, like a mirror breaking or somebody getting thrown down the stairs. Yeah. It can be just beautiful and subtle. 
you know, my, my family told me stories like this, you know, when I was growing up and my family does not, did not have any paranormal belief structure whatsoever. Right. But I grew up hearing these interesting stories that were passed down as like family heirloom stories, a story where, you know, my grandfather, Aubrey, he went off to give a speech and he was really excited about the speech. He was a, he was a guest, he was a professor at a college and he was giving another speech at another prestigious college and he got in his car and he left the house and that was the only car. This is before cell phones and they had so, and they had actually no phone, you know, they had no landline phone at the house. So they just had a car and that was their, that was how they lived. And my mom had, you know, four sisters and a brother and uh and they were all at home with my grandma and so aubrey goes off and he goes off to give this speech that he's been excited about been working on for weeks and craig my uncle craig breaks his arm badly like really bad break in his arm and my grandma was an army nurse and so knew that it needed to get set and she couldn't do it you know she he needed to go to a hospital so she doesn't know what to do you know she doesn't have a phone to call anybody they're isolated they don't have neighbors they can go run talk to they're they're in a difficult situation <clears throat> and so she just starts go she goes into meditation or whatever it was she didn't meditate so she just sits down and says aubrey aubrey come home aubrey come home aubrey come home and inexplicably he turns around his car and comes home knowing that he's going to be a no-show at this talk but he just he's he just came home right and he picked up my uncle craig and took him to the hospital and like that story was that story was passed on and it's like what are the chances you know for if like my what are the chances that he would give up on this speech and just happen to come home you know like it's it's almost the it's almost impossible to believe that there wasn't that connection between my grandma bonnie and aubrey that caused that reality to happen i totally agree with you that's validation of the interconnectedness of humanity at a very subtle level she actually was able to reach out to him through that connection and say hey we need help he tuned into it he listened and he came and that's what i mean a paranormal experience is that subtle but it can have that profound of an impact when you listen to it you tune in and you're like okay i'm going with it let's follow and see where this happens where this goes yeah. my stepdad had another story he was, my stepdad was a swat team squad leader in compton you know heavy heavy work back you know 40 50 years ago so he was on on pursuit of some kind of armed robbery or some some situation and they had a plan where he was going to go they were going to try and triangulate around this place he was supposed to go down this alley you know on foot and they were supposed to meet at this place and they're all they're all running moving into place full gear you know full full SWAT gear and he just stops and will not go down the alley you know he's like i can't go down the alley and then he like backs he backs out of it you know like radios to everybody like i cannot go down this alley they're like what the fuck do you mean like this is the plan he's like i can't and then they're like all right all right all right and they look and there was an ambush set up in the alley where somebody had like a shotgun like pointed like right behind this thing just ready for anybody to come down the alley and it's like and he's he had no i mean that and these are interesting because their belief 
structure was not in place where this was something that they were looking for. But somehow something actually pierced the veil. Even, even I guess they would say instead of being like Randy, who's, who was atheistic towards it, they were more agnostic. They didn't not believe it necessarily, but they certainly didn't believe, they certainly didn't believe it. You know, so these stories always stuck out in my mind as like really interesting. And I've always tried, I've always, I think that's opened my mind a little bit to more possibility, just hearing these things, these heirlooms passed on from my family. Oh, absolutely. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing it because Mm -hmm. that's a perfect example of how a whisper, as I call it, is so subtle that you don't even understand where it's coming from unless you're tuned in and aware, but it can have that profound impact. And yeah, like I said, it's a whisper. It's so subtle and the paranormal doesn't have to be overt. And it's really great that he was able to listen to that and follow that and just feel that, that urge is Mm -hmm. what I call it. You know, that urge that comes from the whisper to go, Nope, I'm not doing this Mm -hmm. because that saved his life. Awesome. So let's talk about, all right. So let's talk about, and as we, as we've said, some of these things we could, we could understand them as internal, internal guidance. Maybe that's his higher self. You can understand all Mm -hmm. of this stuff from an internal lens, but let's take this with an in extrinsic lens and let's say all right let's let's push these things and call them entities as the greeks did with everything like the daemon the muse all of this stuff was externalized for the greeks and it helped them understand it because it gave them subject object separation so they could look at them and understand them while at the same time knowing that these were all internal so let's follow that same path and let's talk about some of the names and some of the characteristics of some of these entities both the you know the ones that are kind of anti <laughs> anti your 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 best existence and the ones that are that are helpful um the, the and i don't like using good or bad but the ones that are helpful and not helpful in uh, in in a situation let's just kind of cover the pantheon as you've come to understand in your exploration like yeah and you're right i i don't want to ascribe terms like good and evil or good and bad, all that kind of stuff to these things, because they are just entities that subsist off of certain types of energy. Doctor Who had a great example of what evil is. Evil is just a matter of which side of the fork you're on. And so the example that I give is, let's say there's a fox out there that kills a rabbit, and that rabbit's a a mother rabbit that's feeding her young. Well, to those baby bunnies... That fox that killed the mother is evil. But now that fox brings the, the rabbit home to its den where there are baby foxes there that need to eat. That fox is now an angel. So it, it just really depends on what our point of view is. So when I do shadow work with people, I say, let's not look at this as positive or negative emotions. Let's just say they're unwanted or unhelpful emotions mm-hmm. so that we can work through them and get to the other side. And it removes that judgment. And it removes, let's say, some of that externalization, you know, that subject-object differentiation that we can do because we realize there is actually a connective tissue between us of some kind, some sort of a, a ethereal fascia, if you want to say it. Nice word. Connect yeah. with. And so one of the basic ones that we create all the time is called a thought form. And thought forms exist in all sorts of culture. Even in the Norse culture, they're called hukams, huk being thought and ham being form. Now, what we do when we create these things is they are generated from our own persistent emotional state. Like if 
there is something spooky going on in the house and we have this fear state about it, we're going to create this little ball of energy that is just programmed with scare me. And it subsists off of fear energy. And when we have those quiet, lonely moments, it's going to poke us with fear energy. And we're going to go, what's going on? There's something here. I know it. And we become a battery to generate, to feed this thought form. And again, the more it pokes us, the more we feed it, the stronger it gets. And if we don't know that this is an external influence as we're seeing it that way, it's just going to continue poking us. And we think there's really something going on. And thought forms come in every flavor of human emotion, from fear to anger, hostility, to actually complacency. Sometimes they can give us that comfort, quiet energy so that we don't have to get up and do anything. You know, where we just sit there and go, meh, I'm happy. Why bother? But then when you get through that in, that influence and it's gone, you're suddenly going, what was I doing? What? And now you suddenly find that inner vigor, that inner fire to go do something again. So sometimes these positive emotion thought forms might not be the best things. Mm. It it seems like if you could control your own thought forms, you would really be a, a, an alchemist in every sense of the word, like a, a modern magician. If just by just by simply controlling your thought forms, and I think a lot of the really the people that you know a lot of people admire like take someone like david goggins i'm not sure if you're familiar with him but he wrote this book can't hurt me ex-navy seal he's always running and his motto is stay hard and people look up to him but you could look up you could look at his character and just say like in his body and say like oh this is a, a different breed of human which he is in some regard but also you could say that his constant reinforcement of this thought form that he is unhurtable and he is this person that'll go push through any amount of pain. Like he actually has this army of entity thought form that's, that's behind him as well. And, and same with a lot of these like kind of magnetic personalities, Wim Hof or any of these individuals, it's like they're carrying this mountain of thought form energy that's within them. And also it's also comes in front of them and behind them and around them. It's like a, like a swarm and i think that's why people get so like wow tony robbins i'm sure has i've never seen him live but i'm sure he has that kind of energy as well absolutely and in that case they might even be tulpas these are a, a term that comes to us from tibetan buddhist practice about creating this external entity that does exactly that it's like i am unhurtable i'm unstoppable no matter what's going on i can persevere through this and it has this powerful energetic presence it also influences let's say the nature of reality through collective observation let's put it that way if we're going to put those terms in mm-hmm. meaning i am unstoppable i cannot i'm unhurtable that sort of thing it's generating that energy bubble and the people around him are in agreement to that one so they're tuned into it they're feeling it they're like yeah he's totally unstoppable he can go for that Every time we watch, you know, Wim Hof and he's talking about his breathing and he gets into that tub full of ice, right? We're like, wow, look at that. It does not only two things, it reinforces that ability for him to be able to do that one, but it also enables him to be this ideal archetype of what this kind of person is through his breathing and through his body control can endure these extreme situations. And it tells us, oh, if he can do that, I can do that too. It's possible. So now we're tuning into that tulpa frequency and we're suddenly learning these breathing techniques and we're feeling the body warm up and we're like, okay, now I'm ready to get into a bathtub full of ice and try this thing out. 
And it makes it a lot less difficult than, let's say, just somebody thrown into a bathtub of ice that doesn't believe it's possible. Right. So those tulpas are an interesting way of affecting the collective unconscious and interpreting our belief. And it can be a very positive tool, like you said. It's amazing yeah. stuff that's out there. Yeah. The One of the things that in the language that I use in, in my inner circle is we talk about code exchange. And I can feel this happening when I encounter a different medicine person or a different different type of being and it could be anybody i actually encountered recently at a fit for service event there was a a guy who showed up there and he was you know mixed navajo blood and he had the navajo braids and i was just immediately drawn like out of all the crowd i was immediately like i got to talk to this guy and i just felt something was important there for me and we start talking turns out he's an ex-navy seal and he'd spent six years as a sun dancer and obviously that's one of the most intense rituals of you know, oh, yeah. I've talked about it with Parangi of, of fasting, dry fasting for four days, doing sweats, piercing this whole thing. He'd done, done that for six years. And there was this, just being around him was this, there was this code exchange where I realized like, aha, like this guy has no trepidation and fear about pain. Like discomfort to him is not what discomfort is to me. Like he has a whole different relationship with discomfort. And there was a little bit of a transfer of that where I got that flavor and it didn't like immediately contagiously take me over. I'd have to do the work as well, like, like he has to get to that state. But I, I understood it. And a little piece of that, a little piece of that energy, you know, a little piece of that, those entities, those tulpas or the thought forms that are surrounding him, like I got to encounter them and I got to know them. And they're, they're now like, I have him as kind of like a guide and that those energies is kind of like a guide because I touched it. I felt it. I'm like, okay. And even in the, I was cold plunging this morning and oftentimes I leave my hands out of the cold plunge because the, the fingers are like the most painful part to get in the cold. And it doesn't do the body a whole lot of good to, you know, ice your hands. It's really about the head and the, and the core temperature. And that's really what's causing the physiological benefit. But today, largely because of this code exchange, I believe I was like, all right, I'm going to submerge my hands. And I'm just going to deal with the pain that's coming in through my fingers and my knuckles. And I thought about him. And I did that. And I was like, this is just my little tiny baby way to reinforce this. Okay, you don't have to have the same relationship with discomfort. You know, you can have a, a radical acceptance of discomfort. And then also the lessons of the Sundancers is the only way they make it through is prayer. So then I was like, all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send the prayer to my hands to stay, you know, to like ease the pain. And I could feel it work just subtly, you know, and that was like a powerful, because I believed that I was able to use that, you know, use that just from that brief encounter from, you know, someone who came to one of my events that I talked to for 30 minutes. That's right. I'm seeing the multiple layers that that's working on. And I love your term code exchange because I've always called it the power of presence which is why I always tell people to own your power, step into that and let it be a beacon shining around you. Because that old adage of that you are an amalgam of the five people you keep closest to you, that's why, is because we're constantly sharing that code between each other just by being in each other's energy field, by the thought forms that we feed and the tulpas and everything that we keep around us, we're constantly sharing that. And the, the lessons that you gain from just being in that moment and from what you learned about that and then applying it. We do that all the time at such an unconscious level with each other, which, you know, this little tattoo in the back of my hand, brand off brand, Bryn, 
is from the Old Norse, a, a brand from a brand burns burn. It basically means from like a flaming twig to a flaming twig. We reinforce each other by being mm-hmm. around each other. So it's a reminder to me to keep higher level people around me and to try to be in the highest state possible because of that power presence, that code exchange. It's very real. It's all over the place. And if you don't know that it's out there, you may not be aware of the influence it's having on you, but you're very tuned into it, which is really yeah. cool. Well, let's keep on, let's keep on, you know, these are some of the basic, these are some of the basic structures that I think a lot of people can be like, all right, I get that. I feel that. All right, let's start to go a little more mythological now and start to ascribe a little more, you know, a little more character to some of these entities. Heck yeah. Let's take a dive down into wacky woo land. Let's go. Heck yeah. And we're going to talk about something called egregores. Egregores are collectively created entities. We don't realize we're doing it, but as a community, as a collective unconscious, we're creating these things. And the example I give is let's imagine there's a paleolithic tribe with tall grasses all around their little fire circle and they hang around their fire circle at night. They hear things rustling in the grass. And if a kid gets a little too close to the tall grass, they're gone. Poof. You know, it might be, you know, a saber-toothed cat or some other predator in the tall grass is snagging the kid. But now they tell stories of some sort of a demonic presence that's out there in the tall grass lurking. And any child who strays away from the family, it snatches up. As the years progress, they're telling these stories. They find that if they leave offerings at a little table near the, the tall grass, that there seems to be less likelihood of the children getting taken. As the stories progress generation after generation, this demon now becomes a protector of children, and they're leaving offerings to keep their children safe. And the more they tell these stories, the more real that gets and the more effect that it has on the community. Yes, it is influencing their subconscious behaviors, because as they're making these offerings, they're leaving these prayers, they're telling their stories, the children know to stay away from the edge of the tall grass, the parents know to keep more of a watch on their children, but it is having that collective influence on them. Every single culture has done this. Every single god that is in our cultures, you know, from the Babylonian, Macedonians, Norse, Celtic, Egyptian, tend to be these collectively created egregores, and they subsist off of our belief. We need to believe in them, And so they'll do little things here or there to get our belief, to influence things. So we go, oh, geez, it's out there. Now, a very benign example of an egregore is Christmas Eve. When you're feeling that that glimmer in the air, Mm -hmm. when there's just like that sense of awe and joy, Mm -hmm. and you have this generosity of giving And that vibe just seems to be so much higher. So you let yourself tune into it and you're giving to each other. And the kids have that magic and wonder going on in their life. That is the egregore of Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. And we are willingly engaging in a possessory right of tuning into that egregore and letting it go through us and influence through us. And that's how Santa Claus can visit every child's home all around the world in one night because it is this collectively created entity. Wow. Well, they come in all sorts of flavors. Abandoned asylums, when there is definitely paranormal activity going on, and we tell stories about the horrors that have happened in there, we're creating this collectively created entity, and it needs our belief in these horrors and the terrors going on in there, and so it will provoke us to get that belief and that energy from it. So 
Egregores come in all flavors from gods and angels and demons to Santa Claus to haunted locations. They're the big nasties that people encounter when they go to some of these really bad haunted places. Mm. Santa Claus is such a good example. It's such a beautiful example because it really is that Santa Claus is real to a certain mm-hmm. extent. And, and the fact that the fact that the parents are actually delivering the presents people get lost in what is real and what is not real. Yeah, all right, the parents are delivering the presents, but they're delivering it under the influence of the egregore, the spirit of Santa. Potentially, potentially not, but but it's it's there, it's present. And the more that spirit is invoked, the more that Santa Claus is real. And it doesn't matter that it doesn't matter that the hands of the of the parents are actually the ones that are putting the things under the tree and eating the cookies and drinking the milk. You know they're they're in the spirit of the egregore of Santa, and it's such a like b- much more beautiful and and powerful way to look at it and tell the story. It reminds me of another one of my friends who you would absolutely you and him would hit it off. He's like a very magical being. His name's Anthony West. And oh yeah, you know Anthony. Oh yeah, good stuff. He does good. Yeah. Work. So so Anthony was talking about how when he was younger, he was like dead set on trying to have some telekinesis activate within him and so he was trying to move this can like from one spot of the desk to the other spot of the desk and he was so frustrated that he couldn't move it with his mind and then as he tells the story he gets into this trance state and then he's like i can do this like i can move this can and then he says unconsciously his hand went and moved the can and he was like, oh, oh, I get it. Like, I don't, ha- I am moving it with my mind. I'm just using my hand because my hand follows the rules of this world. And I just moved it with my mind, you know, this unconscious process of moving it. And it was this real revelation to him about the nature of magic and how, like, just because it was the hand that moved it didn't mean that his mind didn't actually move it just in some regard and just because the parents are the ones dropping off the presents doesn't mean that santa didn't do it too it just needed the assistance of these actual physical beings absolutely and that's the key to how magic works it's not this bibbity bobbity boop harry potter wave a wand and then it magically appears it's a shifting of internal belief an opening to reception of the reality of the situation, which is why I tell people that the ritual chamber is actually a reset button for your mind, is that's where you get a new perspective of how the world works. And then the medium of manifestation for magic is actually time. It follows the exact same rules of our reality. It just needs that time to manifest. And so if somebody wants to experiment with that, the the almost sort of bibbidi-bobbidi-boop magic is when you're driving, don't try to get a green light. Don't try to make your light turn green because the other side has to have a yellow light first. So you try to manifest the yellow light for them so that you can finally get the green light for you. Because if you get the green light and they have a green light, it's a mess and you don't want that. But the mm-hmm. rules of that system is they have to have a yellow light here first, then a green light here. Mm-hmm. So always be aware of the rules of our reality and then how what needs to be shifted in the causal order of things and then make that little shift even if it's a physical action that you have to take make that shift yeah it also reminds me of the you know one of the myths disney does a good job of telling myths and interesting stories but if you break apart some of these stories you'll find these 
little the truth that's hiding in the fiction the truth that's hiding in the lie right and the story of peter pan like we all know that every time someone doesn't believe in fairies a fairy dies and tinkerbell goes into dire straits depending on which story as people fail to believe in in fairies anymore and 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 this is the idea ultimately which is saying that belief is what fuels these the existence of these things so the little the gnomes that still are like a part of the uh part of norse culture you know the modern iteration of scandinavian norse culture they're they still in some in some way kind of mildly exist in that place where they don't exist in in other places you know and it's and it's it's the belief it's the belief that fuels it so disney was actually through its mythological lens telling us a true story about the nature of reality but of course we just think oh this is just peter pan it's just a story but potentially they were pointing at and then they had a you know hidden truth within the within the fiction of that cartoon oh absolutely and a lot of movies hide those hidden truths but you're right there are a plethora of spirits out in the world and the norse still believe in the hulda folk the hidden people and it's a matter of you know tuning in can you tune in to see what they are where they are how how they interact with and you have to have that belief and that believing scene dynamic kicks in and suddenly it's there and it's like whoa another movie that does i think a really good job of explaining this one it's a little less known than peter pan a russian made movie in english uh called branded and the gist of it is is eventually this man gets a certain a level of awareness and awakening that he sees all of these corporations have these tulpas that are attached to the corporation getting kids to eat like these burgers like crazy and making themselves obese and they can't stop getting this or buy this and buy that buy get into that greed and that consumption because that belief in that corporate identity that belief in that corporate branding is what's fueling that tulpa of that organization causing the financial success of that organization but the average person has absolutely zero idea that they're being influenced not only by the marketing and the advertising but at the energetic collective unconscious level that they're believing in that brand is the best one it's the only one that works for me well there might be another brand that can do just as good no it's just this one that's us agreeing with that tulpa of that organization going, nope, I'm only going to buy this brand because it's the only good one that's out there. Mm. And that movie branded is a little over the top wacky, but it's, it's fun. But it also gives that emphasis that there's something more going on than just marketing. I remember in about, it was probably 2015 and I started my company on it in 2011 really was when it took off. And it was about 2015 or so that I went into a medicine journey. I think it was a mushroom journey. And I actually encountered the tulpa of on it and I went, Oh shit. Like this isn't just, this isn't my company anymore. This has its own, it's its own life form. And it's been powered by all of the customers. Everybody's worked out in the gym. Everybody who's talked about it, everybody who's, and it was a beautiful, I mean, it was a beautiful entity, but I was like, this is crazy. Like I could feel that it had its own life form and it had its own structure. And it actually, you know, that thing was actually what carried it forward from that point. Like initially it was my belief and then just pushing out and like building this thing. But then it got momentum, like the flywheel effect. And all of a sudden it was an entity that was far beyond 
what I had created. It was its own, it was its own thing. And, and that momentum has just continued to carry and will continue to carry. And of course it could be, you know, it could be changed, but that would be a very difficult task. And it would actually be catastrophic because that entity that's been so powerful would have to die. You know, it's like it, th- that, and that's the thing that I think I have so much faith about, not only about the new owners, because I ended up selling the company last year, I have faith in the new owners, but I also, and the existing employees, everybody there, but I also have faith in the entity, that the entity is is real and it wants to survive and thrive in the same beautiful way that it always had. And I still feel it. It's still, it's still strong and doing its thing, even though I have much, much less involvement with it now than I used to. Absolutely. That's a beautiful example of experiencing that, that tulpa of a business. They're very real. And yes, it starts off with you as the spark, you planting the seed into the mind of the collective. And then all of those people who are in agreement with that seed that you created, you know, they fuel the the seed, they fuel that energy into it. They feed the soil, they get the water, the sunlight to that seed so that it grows into this big, beautiful thing that is not as conscious in the way that we are conscious, but it has its own consciousness. It has its own awareness. It has its own need for self, self-preservation self and existence. So it will do what it needs to do in positive ways because it's a positive organization. It's a positive mm-hmm. thing that you created. So by helping people achieve their fitness goals, by helping getting to a healthier place, people are feeding it with like, wow, this stuff is amazing. It works. It's great. Mm. And I, I get how this works. And I want to tell my friend about how this works because it's great stuff. And it, they're getting this positive feedback from them. So the, even though that movie branded is about the negative side of tulpas, the positive side of tulpas are out there as well, which goes back to why I emphasize people take charge of yourself, own, your, own your own power instead of everything else. Because people who are in a good position, who have a good heart, a good mind, good intentions for this world need to tap into that power, need to tap into their financial resources and make things happen because that's how we're shifting the collective unconscious by people like you doing the work that you were doing and other people who are doing very similar work, creating these positive tulpas, these positive tulpas for change because the shift in collective unconsciousness that we need happens one person at a time, influencing ever-growing pools of people that influence other growing pools of people too. Mm-hmm. So I love the work that you're doing and continuing to do because oh, you are you. helping the world as well as everybody else who is tuning into what you're doing. Yeah. It's amazing yeah. stuff. Well, let's continue. We're, we're on, we're on pretty safe territory right now. We're still on a, a big sturdy branch before we dive into the sea of woo here. You know, I mean, these things all make a lot of sense and you can explain them in a lot of ways, but let's keep, you know, let's keep going, you know, beyond egregores and, and carry on with the pantheon of interesting Uh, entities absolutely it is my personal belief that there are actually only three religions in the world ha here we go there is the belief in let's say the the solar deities the solar seasonal cults right they believe that everything happens by the sun's passage of movement and that the seat the 12 months of the year, the four seasons, everything is very seasonal oriented. So they tend to be fertility. They tend to focus on sexuality, possibly. But, you know, versions of Christianity is also an offshoot of the seasonal solar cult. The sun and the the moon and all of these kind of movements are out there is one version of it. 
And this is a lot of pagan traditions tend to be seasonal solar cults. And so in these traditions, they've ascribed natural forces with supernatural anthropomorphized abilities. You know, the God of the sea, the God of the air, the God of the, the land, the God of fertility, the God and goddess of fertility, right? The masculine feminine principles. So all of our ancient cultures that have created these fertility deities are creating egregores that we believe in. Like if we're doing the Norse tradition, Freyr and Freya, I've experienced them as very real. So it was a lot of different people, but they are egregores of the collective that created Freyr and Freya, uh, variations of Odin. And so these egregores still exist from all over these traditions, all over these worlds. They got demonized. You know, the Babylonian, the Canaan, the Macedonians got demonized. And now they're listed in the false hierarchy and the, the Goetia as demonic entities. But they were just benevolent, helpful gods to the pre-Semitic religions that were demonized Middle Ages. And now people today are opening up these books thinking they're calling on demons, but they're just calling on variations of egregores. A, a fun example of how egregores work come to us from the TV show of American Gods. It's the Easter episode where they go to this mansion run by Ostara, and she's the goddess of Easter, the, the Norse goddess of Easter. But there are Jesuses there, lots of Jesuses, you know, some that are doing the healing, some that are being... Uh, has a stigmata going, some that are walking across water, and they're saying that every one of these Jesus comes from a different version of Christianity that believes in a separate version of Jesus. Wow. So they're all real. It's just they go by the same name, but we're tuned into it. So that's how these seasonal solar cults create egregores. Now, there is another religion out there that believes in extra-dimensional interplanetary creatures and deifies them. You know, these are what we will experience in the DMT worlds. These are what we experience when I use Black Mirror, that they are these influential entities that come from other layers of reality. They are sovereign, sapient beings like humans are. They have a natural existence, a natural creation, but because they live in another layer of reality, another density of existence, they aren't quite physical like we are, but they still can have influence over us. And in truth, what they get out of us is debatable. Is it our emotion? Is it our belief? Is it our thought? Do they want something more? Is there some sort of a karmic connection to our spiritual evolution in them? I don't know. But there are many different traditions out there that believe in these interdimensional beings. And they brought in, you know, this is where we talk about like Viracocha, Coetzacatl, Toth, even maybe Hathor and Odin, believe it or not, it tends to be one of these interdimensional beings. So our, our religions are out there having that. But now there's this third religion that's out there that I believe might actually be the religion of these interdimensional beings. And as humans, we interpret them as serpent cults. Now, serpent is not this evil, negative, demonic entity, actually. A serpent is a symbolization of wisdom, of your own higher self, your own higher abilities. This is, you know, the kundalini rising with the serpents rising up the meridian, going into this higher state of being. 
And so these serpent cults are all about how do I move myself into a higher state of being to a higher frequency so I can gain a higher level of consciousness. And it is through this work of working through whatever it is that you want to call it to move to a higher state of being where you can see the egregores, where you can see these interdimensional beings, where you can see how they're working because your mind is now on a different level, on a different frequency. And you're going, oh, I see over there that church has created a reality bubble, which is just kind of like a field of energy of programming, of explaining this is how the world works. This is how reality functions. And everybody who believes in that subset of reality, that subset of collective unconscious, create the reality through their continued belief. And this egregore is just continuing to fuel that. And the people who are in that reality bubble are 100% dead certain that this is exactly how the world works. And you know what? They're right 100% of the time because they are collectively creating that until somebody comes along and goes, but wait, 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 does it have to be like that? Can we do this? Then they tend to be ostracized, kicked out, thrown out. And then their mind opens and goes, whoa, the world is vastly different than what mm. I thought it was. So that's kind of a, a little bit of a deeper dive into how these things work and influence us is they are creating our belief patterns on how we believe that the world works because it tunes us into them. And just like you were talking about the code exchange, when we are in their presence, we are getting a code exchange from them. They're getting it from us. So they're getting something out of it. And when we commune together to believe in these reality bubbles, when we commune together to believe in these deities, we are opening ourselves up through internal agreement to their influence and saying, yes, show me how the world works. Tell me what I need to be doing. And then we go out and behave in the world. And our the way our brain works is what we believe. We can perceive it. And that's all we perceive. So that's exactly how the world works. And now we're creating it. And it's not that it's a dangerous thing that these things are influencing us in our world. It's just a natural part of how the world works. And if you were unaware of it, you could succumb to the influence and just go with the flow, which a lot, yeah. a lot, a lot of people do. Yeah. 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 They're unconscious to all of these, all of these influences that are around them. And it's, it's interesting, you know, cause again, going back to my inner circle, my own, you know, personal life and the belief systems that, that I have and hold. So my partner, Vailana, she started getting these interactions with the being and this being was an an energy that would actually come through her as her but not quite her and she didn't understand it and it was actually quite terrifying to her when she felt this energy this immense surge of power this this feeling of looking out at the world ready to devour any any darkness and any and and actually and i've seen this happen with her her eyes start blinking and her and this whole energy is just comes through her in this really really powerful way and when it first started coming through it was a little bit chaotic and i think because she was wrestling with it and ultimately you know i think coincidentally or not one of the big right above my main altar i have a picture of kali and kali you know the dark goddess standing on mm -hmm. shiva and one day she was just looking at that and always wondering like this is why does he have this above his altar? i don't even know why i had it above my altar ultimately i mean it's it's a pretty 
intense image. I mean, she has a necklace full of severed arms and heads and she's has her tongue out and a bloody, you know, a bloody sword in one hand. And she's like, ah. but there was something really beautiful about Shiva just on his back, looking up at her like, ah, isn't she great? You know, and there was just some, some beautiful message that was being transmitted through that balance of the acceptance of that kind of wild, fierce, destructive force of the feminine and something clicked and she was like oh i think this is kali and then as she started to understand kali more she's gotten deeper and deeper into relationship with this entity this entity that obviously is being continually worshipped in you know india and different parts of the world still actually to this day as it has been for a long time so an entity with a lot of collective strength that still has a lot of belief holding it and she's able to access this you know this entity and she it'll come out when she's doing energy work when she's clearing darkness and actually there was an accident that happened in uh when in one of our ayahuasca ceremonies and the shamans actually had to leave had to leave the maloka and this you know kali came through and was like okay like i'm on guard and she was just looking around at the outside of the maloka which is where we sit and drink and being like don't you even think about coming in here any any darkness like i will fucking eat you and i will love it you know and i will yep. transmute you back to light and she was just on all fours like tongue out blinking like like please try me you know and she just held the space of the of the maloka and she didn't even really know she didn't know what was going on she didn't know even know the shamans were leaving it's pitch dark but this you know these things happen and then all of a sudden so in our world oh it's like oh yeah that's just kali and so when i see that come through i'll just say hey welcome goddess and there's no there's no friction in my belief system same with my you know dear dear friend caitlin who has a proclivity to access what you would call mother mary energy you know even though none of we don't have either hindu or christian belief systems but that's the closest approximation now she's actually going even deeper and finding that potentially that energy is a mesopotamian i think goddess inanna um i think mm -hmm. i'm saying that right yep but and but ultimately this energy that she accesses is like the fiercest compassion it's the fiercest compassion and when i experience that it's particularly for me one of the most powerful medicines that i can experience because she will and she speaks to me and and they both speak in, in different languages that are unintelligible, but she'll speak and go through this process where I can tell that she's feeling all of my pain and feeling it and exaggerating it just to show me that I feel what you feel, I know what you feel, and I'm so with you that I'll feel it to an extent that you can't even feel it. You know, So not only am I with you, I'm, I'm in so much compassion for you that I'll show you how much I'm with you by feeling it even more then you'll ever feel it and we're in this together and that is just this like amazingly cathartic process of like whoa you know and and this is like and this is kind of her her the energy that comes through her more frequently and i and i don't think that for the rest of their life they'll be limited to access to these particular things but it's very interesting that those are the ones that seem to reliably come through for each of these two you know the two most important females in my life other than you know my mother and family sister whatever um but this is just a part of it's a part of our reality and it, there's no friction it's like and when that happens it's like wow like welcome goddess 
you know, whether you call it Mary or Inanna or Kali, or there's probably many names for this energy. Um, yep. But it's just like, this is, this is our life. This is our kind of magical, magical existence. And it's, it's so real. And you feel it in every, every cell and fiber of my being. Now, you know, the amazing Randy would probably look at it and like say, you know, look at these kooks speaking in tongues, you know, and, and that would be real for him. But for us inside this field, inside this field of reality, it's absolutely real. Well, hey, the only language I'm extremely fluent in is glossolalia. Uh, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. This is a beautiful story because the dark goddess is alive and well, and she is out there. A lot of the guys that I've worked with, a lot of the men, either they've been deployed overseas or they've had some really tragic times in their life. The dark goddess has actually come to them and they've all seen them in different ways. It could be Hakate. Hakate comes through a lot, but there has been a Nana. There's been hell from the Norse tradition. There has been Kali. She's been showing up a lot, a lot, a lot in people and their experience is exactly what you described. And so a lot of these men are a little put off by it. They're a little trepidatious about dealing with it. They're really confused and concerned because she's coming in and exacerbating some of that pain. And they're like, but I don't want to relive this. I don't want to go through this. I just want to stuff it down and not feel it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. She's here to help you transform that darkness mm -hmm. into the light. She's helping you to heal through that. Because if you can feel that pain, you can acknowledge that. Now we can do our shadow work together. And she's a companion there to help you work through that shadow, through that darkness, so that you can heal from the tragedy, from the trauma that you encountered. So absolutely, the dark goddess is alive and well. She's everywhere. And it's it's interesting, as a contrast to your, your uh, explanation, is I haven't seen it too much with women lately, but it's been a lot of men, mostly mm. men who were overseas, are experiencing this dark goddess and wondering what she's all about. So I love that you brought this up so that we can bring that to a lot of the guys out there. If you're feeling that she's out there, accept her embrace because it's not cold and harsh and damaging. It's actually loving and caring. And the only way to get through that pain is to acknowledge it a little bit, to accept it, to understand the lessons that came from it, to do the shadow work so that you can actually heal from it. And that's what she's there for. Thank you for bringing yeah. that up. Yeah. For sure, for sure. And I think, you know, f seeing them embodied in somebody you love is actually a lot, a lot easier to, you know, in my shoes, it's like, oh, well, this is my sweetheart and my best friend. Like, it actually makes it really easy to understand that this isn't scary and they're here, it's here for a really positive reason. And I can imagine it being more scary if you're encountering it in the astral because then you're, and also don't have any belief system about it. Like, whoa, what is this thing? But as you see it embodied, you know, and taking form in, you know, inside people you love, it's, it's a different, it's a different experience, you know, and, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it seems like it's happening more and more frequently in our, in our circle, like, because I think our field, like many people have seen this and we're all on the same kind of medicine path. We're about, we're five days out from going to do another ayahuasca journey with El Dragon and nice. we're, we're a part of this field of belief and if you do ayahuasca enough it kind of <laughs> it opens up the ethereal membrane as he said and like you you experience things that are inexplicable and so it's like there's a combination of that the opening of belief and also the code exchange as people have seen 
these transmissions come through and all of a sudden transmissions will activate in their own signature and you can tell they're not copying anything they're all like radically unique in their energetic signature probably based on resonance with who that person has formed themselves to be and what that external energy is there's a resonance link that is actually very precise and so you know caitlin's version of mary and anna is different than anybody else's version because it's coming through the unique self of caitlin by lana's version of kali is a unique version of that energy but it's still some of that energy is pouring through the unique expression of that being and creating something really new new in the world but also ancient at the same time yep you just described what i call an energetic anchor point and this is how these entities connect with us is I don't like to use the word agreement because it has a different connotation of what I'm implying here, but it's the best word that we have for it. And by agreement, I don't mean consciously, willingly going, yes, you can attach to me and I'm going to bond to your energy. I mean it at the energetic, at the visceral, emotional level, that there's something inside of us that is in resonance with these entities, even if it's just for a moment or it's part of our belief system or something, I, there's no words to describe it, but there's this energetic anchor point where there's that energetic agreement. And so they are in some way tuned in to that dark goddess, to that Kali, to that Inanna. And they're now allowing that to be coming through. And because they're aware of it and because it's a positive thing, they are allowing that to happen. You know, even mm -hmm. if it's at the subconscious energetic level, they're allowing that to happen because there is a benefit to them for sure and a benefit to you and for other people and so that energetic anchor point is something we all create we all work with sometimes it's not for our benefit because sometimes you know we're, we're brought up with the belief you're not good enough you can never do anything you just suck at everything so we create that energetic anchor point and then we bring a, an entity to us that is like yeah you just can't do this you're just not going to mm. succeed with that and that's fueling that inner belief, that inner belief pattern that we go out into the world and we now prove it. And so you're right. It is this continuous resonance that we're having, which goes back to filling that glass with wine. You are that glass full of water. Do your spiritual work. Do your prayer. Do your meditation. Do your exercise. Do everything that you can to tune yourself into a higher frequency being. Now, this is where the dark goddess energy comes in and the shadow work comes in. That's amazing is because we can go into that energetic anchor point. We can actually go into the body, into the to the energy fields with our consciousness and have a dialogue with it and say, why are you here? How are you actually helping me? You know, Because mm. even if it's something negative and disruptive right now in our life, at some point in our life, it actually helped us. It gave us that hostility. It gave us that aggression. It gave us that negative output that helped us to adapt to the situation we were in. So we needed that for who we were at that time period. But now when we're out of that, we're like, okay, I don't need this anymore. This isn't working. How do we get out of it? And that's where the dark goddess comes in and exacerbates that pain a little bit so we can see it. So we can be aware of it and go, oh God, this is awful. This sucks. What's this all about? And then she goes, great. Now you can alchemize that. Now you can work with this because there's a secret to that energetic anchor point that tells you who you really are and what's valuable to you and who the core of your being is. And so when you get through that darkness, when you get through all of that, you go, oh, that's why I'm important. 
that's what's so really cool about me. And it was just hiding underneath that layer of darkness in that energetic anchor point. And now you can still use that energetic anchor point and now attune it to a different frequency so that it's now bringing in entities to you that are in resonance to you. This is a very real case that I'm not going to name any names because it's happened to multiple clients. They were in abusive relationships. They separated, but there is still that connection going on because of that energetic anchor point, having a, mm-hmm. having a tendril to this abusive person. We work on cutting that tether. We work on resolving this energetic anchor point. It exacerbates the other person. They're calling now. They're getting a little bit worse, but mm-hmm. they're doing their inner work. They're doing their healing. They're like, nope, 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 nope. Then we do the tuning of the frequency. Who is that person that you are? Who are you authentically? And we're going to resonate that energetic anchor point with who you are authentically. Now, all of a sudden, another person comes into their life that resonates with their frequency, that augments who they are. And they're like, I get it now. That's how I was able to use that energetic point, letting go of this thing that wasn't helping me any longer so that I could be me finding somebody who really augments who I am. Now, this happened multiple clients. And then not just at the physical, personal level, but even spiritual connections you know they get rid of that negative entity saying you suck you suck you suck stop trying right, anything right. to connect with that higher level being of like yeah go give that a shot see what happens oh yeah you did it man do it again yeah there you go do it again yeah where it becomes like this cheering section and it just comes to tuning in and making that shift you just helped me make a connection between two what i thought were disparate phenomenon so in my study with Maestro Hamilton Souther, ayahuasca shaman, who studied under Maestro Alberto Davila, who studied under Maestro Julio, this lineage of mestizo shamans, and they really were known for hex reversals. And in the world of ayahuasca shamanistic lore, there's brujos or brujas who actually can put energetic, you know, kind of curses or bad medicine or hexes or ways in which they can siphon energy. And they're actually not curanderos, curanderos. They're not there to actually heal you. They're there as predators, as parasites or predators in, in this kind of law of the jungle mentality. Again, not thinking of themselves as good or bad. They're thinking of themselves as the jaguar and you're the taper, you know, and like that's, that's, that, that's it. You know, they're just eating. They're, they're eating. But nonetheless, people don't want that as a part of their life. They don't want to be the fodder for some more powerful energetic being. So, Maestro Alberto and Hamilton would reverse these, you know, and remove these these hexes. And I actually was there to witness one of them that, and I've told this story many times, I won't tell it again, with my former partner, Whitney, where she was, she had this horrible ayahuasca experience with this one uh, female shaman, this bruja, and came back and was just so much worse for having done ayahuasca than when she arrived. It was just gnarly, and I could tell something was off. So we went to go see Maestro Alberto and and Maestro Hamilton, and he goes to do his bentiata around, and everybody gets the same song, but with her, he stops, and he smokes his mapacho, and he takes a moment, and he starts singing this strident, like, bone-chilling, hair, his hair standing on its end, Icaro, to, to reverse, the, reverse the hex and change the, change the nature of the magic, and because it was magically placed on her, and in, in the same way, it was removed through that energetic field. Now, and, and of course, that was a huge turning point in Whitney's journey. You know, after that, all of the symptoms and, and feelings that she'd felt from that previous, that previous encounter with that bruja was all gone. And she was all 
all good. It was like really unbelievably tangible what actually occurred. But in their in their tradition, when they do that, so when they revert when they reverse one of those hexes, they beca- they come into contact with the person who placed the hex. That's just the nature of that reality in which they live. And typically, mm-hmm. they will go into a battle at that point. Like once they've made contact, then it's this astral battle where they bring all of their allies and all of their ikaros and all of their things, and they go into contest. Now, Alberto and Julio and Hamilton—they were the—they were the Billy the Kids. They were the mad. They were the—they were the fastest, strongest, baddest gunslingers. You know, they were the the mo- they were Achilles and and Hector combined. You know, they were the they were the the great warriors. So they would always win. And I remember them telling, you know, they were actually, after they finished that, they all sat down, Hamilton and Alberto sat down in the chairs. And Alberto was like, well, let's go get her. And Hamilton was like, no, 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 no. Like, let's not fight, you know, today. Like, we'll give her a free pass. Like, we're just going to be here with, with the people. So they ended up not fighting that night, you know, in the ceremony because they had a different intention, which was... You know, I don't think Alberto liked that very much. You know, because he's like he's born as a warrior. He wanted to, he wanted to, you know, make them make that woman pay, make the bruja pay for you know, for for doing that. And also, there's ways that they can harvest magic, and it's this whole kind of system. But I tell that story about the awareness of awareness of the person who actually placed the hex. Like they both people become aware. It's not like only the shamans inside that maloka become aware. The other person who placed the hex become aware. There's this awareness, and they enter into this, you know, consciousness link where then they have the opportunity. They see each other, and they decide whether they're going to fight. So as you were talking, all kinds of bad magic is placed. We place on each other through these toxic relationships. It's not very much different than a hex. You know, if you've told someone how worthless they are, how terrible they are, been abusive to them. It's its own form of a hex. It's its own form of brujeria, of sorcery, of bad magic. And so as that person heals that through, doesn't have to be by any means, by magical means. Like we recently had a dear sister of ours who had a very toxic former relationship that was still kind of lingering. And as she's gone through a healing process through all of the different ways, the breath works and everything that we've been doing together, he's come out of the blue and started like hitting her up and texting her and offering her like different things like oh you need some financial help here let me let me do this and this and like just out of the blue as she healed it was almost like what was happening in that situation was the unconscious version of exactly what the ayahuasca shamans talk about is that when you heal the uh, both parties will become activated because they'll realize that this energetic link is now being severed is now being removed and so even completely unconsciously, these things will happen. And that's what you're expressing in your clients. It's like these energetic cords are being removed. I've also had a hard time with people who are like five months into their spiritual practice being like, let's do a cord cutting ceremony. And I'm like, shut the fuck up. You can't cut it that easily. It's not like you just imagine scissors and you cut it. You got to like really, it's deeper than that. You know, these, these things take time to actually heal. You can't just cut a cord. You know, it's not that it's not that fucking simple. I mean, maybe for Maestro Alberto, you can Icaro some some you know magical tendril out of there, but this takes like this takes intense work and it takes some real healing. But also that kind of supernatural connection 
that that link between people. I've seen that happen for sure in in friends that have started to heal, just like you said, heal these past traumatic experiences where that person just comes out of the blue and is like, here I am. And like, whoa, that's wild. Yep. And in fact, that's what I've experienced with a lot of my clients too, is as we're working on whatever their energetic relationships are, I first get them on solid ground, get them on solid footing. I help them to build sanctuary, which is an energetic sanctuary around them so that they are safe and protected, that they've got their spiritual resources that they can connect with, that they work with. And then when it comes time to do that clearing, when it comes time to do that cord cutting, sometimes we'll do, you know, like a psychic gestalt session where I'll help guide them into a deeper state of meditation, to a deeper state of inner world. And they'll go to like a neutral field and they'll bring that person in with them and say everything they've wanted to say to that person, do any, you know, unfortunately do anything that needs to be done to that person, you mm-hmm. know, smack them over the head by a two by four or something mm-hmm. just to say, cut it out. And then we'll go into that energetic anchor point and clear it out. And I will tell them after we do this work, get ready because things are going to be different a little bit. That person, just like what you're saying, is going to feel it. They're going to come back. But also for the next few days, because they're, I'm a big proponent that we are not spiritual beings having a human experience. We're spiritual and physical beings having a dynamic experience. And so I've seen when we clear these anchor points, we clear these attachments out of the way, there is like a toxic release of the cells of the body. Because those cells in our body got used to those same chemicals and those same emotional chemicals rolling over and over and over and over again. Now we've released that attachment. We've released that anchor point. We've cut that cord. We've done that work. The next few days, they're going to experience a drop. Their body needs to detox. They need to you know, get their lymph nodes active and flushing the stuff out, drinking a lot of water. So it's going to have like an immediate impact on their whole world. So you're absolutely right. It's not something that you can go to like a psychic fair and say, hey, I've got this ex-boyfriend, cut that cord, let it go. It's like, sure, we can do that, but it's going to only reattach. And it's going to be there again a little bit stronger because you haven't done the inner processing necessary to keep it off. And at the same time, I've had clients where we're doing some energy work, we're doing some attachment clearing, we're doing entity release, we're doing the cord cutting as needed. And I come across entities, attachments, I come across the cords and I'm like, nope, you are not ready to let that go yet. If we let that thing go and we cut that connection, it's going to be so disruptive for your life. We need to continue doing work in this area, that area, and this stuff. So mm-hmm. it's, like you said, not something to take lightly, not something we're just going to do at a psychic fair and buy a magic feather and make it go away. <laughs> you right. got to do the inner work to keep it away. Yeah. All right, so we're sitting here in a room with my buddy Christian, and he's had a very profound encounter with what he believes and identifies as an archon. And Mm. this being of just steeped in darkness, distortion, delusion, um, malice, whatever you want to ascribe to it, depending on uh, ultimately your purview, I think is the question. Mike, you said it depends on which side of the fork you're in. You know, and, and I do believe that all of these, even the dark energies, the distortions, the delusions, all of this ultimately serves the light in creating the infinite complexity and the opportunity for courage and the, all of these magical things that are part of our world. But for us in our, in our position, you know, sometimes we're on the wrong end of that fork and these entities seem very malicious, very malignant. And he's had one of these encounters. 
what do you say about because a lot of these things that we're talking about really are dependent upon resonance and i can tell you i've been in ceremony with christian i've been there's not a lot of darkness that's in resonance with this guy right like it's not like he's like one of those people you're like well it's, you you cook this up in your own kitchen buddy you know it's it really feels like if i take him at his word that he was encountering something outside of himself that was filled with malice and and you know was definitely malignant and it was a really kind of terrifying and and soul rocking experience that he ultimately made it through of course um but what would you say about these archon energies and of course a lot of people right now if you go on you know instagram and just google around and, and screw around a lot of people are feeling like there's these reptilians and there's these archons and there's these things that are attacking us right now in our world it's very much in the zeitgeist yep. what do you have to say about these like almost even more externalized aggregated forces that you could call archons Yep. Archons run the gamut of everything from egregores to extra dimensional entities. They're real. They're out there. They're influencing everything from the average day person to media resources to politicians. But whether they are absolutely these externally created entities that are externally existing entities, or if they are projections from us, it's one of those. They're both. Yeah. We're both creating them because we believe that, you know, humans are good and nice and fine. And the only way somebody would do something awful and evil is if there's a demon tempting them. And so, therefore, we're creating this demon. That's the only reason why these politicians were doing this is because there's an archon influencing them, making them do it. True. That, that can happen. And there are entities that exist in different layers of reality, different levels of existence. And for us, love and compassion is self-sustaining, where collaboration and cooperation is a great way of really augmenting who we are and building up where we are. There would be other entities that maybe need this destructiveness that's out there, this fear, this temptation that's out there. And your friend may not have been the one to draw it to here, but collectively as a humanity, mm -hmm. you know, we have this programming inside to expect the worst, that the worst is going to happen. Here's this worst case scenario. And collectively we're tuning ourselves into this archonic energy so that we're bringing them in. And I do think that people get the occasional exposure to these external forces, not because they drew them to them, not because they're there, but to bring an awareness of like, hey, mm -hmm. this kind of thing is out there. This is why the work you're doing is so important. So that you are stopping the influence of this kind of a being over all of these people out there. Sometimes it's a training lesson. Myself personally and with clients and with friends, I've actually seen them have a higher self experience that was an ass kicker. Mm -hmm. Higher self came in as a demonic force, just like disrupting, destroying everything through throwing them into a state of fear and panic and anxiety so that they shifted their life. So they did something different. So higher self can be a jerk, a real jerk. <laughs> uh, yeah. In the, in the short term. <laughs> yeah. In the short, in the term. short that, term. And that's a lack of, it's just a lack of perspective of time and purview, but yes, Absolutely. for sure. For sure. Uh, I, in my own experiences, I encountered, the closest thing to an archon I encounter, I mean, I've encountered some massive dark entities, like the one that was the world crusher and 
you know, I've, I've told many of these stories, but one that I haven't told very much is about what I experienced was, I call it the Mecca Archon, or it was like the Techno Archon, and it was this egregore of technology itself, yes. which was only interested in growth and efficiency and was absolutely devoid of the ability to receive compassion or to have compassion or to actually even receive love. And it mm-hmm. was one of the more challenging encounters because even with the world crusher, I ultimately came into resolution with my encounter with the world crusher. And again, these are all on ayahuasca. I'm not just walking down the street and like experiencing this, this is the middle of ayahuasca ceremony, darkness, Icaros, the whole thing. Um, with the world crusher, ultimately, I was able to float up, give him a kiss on the forehead. It seemed like a him, but who knows? Horns and the whole deals, crushing worlds and sands. And and there was this softening, like his eyes actually turned into heart emojis. And there was like this end of this massive conflict that we had as as I was able to love it. With the the Mecha Archon, the, this Techno Archon, it didn't matter. Like love didn't matter to it it didn't it didn't seem to affect it and and that was a very that was a kind of a an interesting one where it was like it didn't have the receptor for that you know for that encounter and it also wasn't particularly interested in fucking with me either because it had no emotional attachment to it it was almost like i was there i couldn't stop it it didn't care that i was there it was just on its directive to grow and continue to amass and continue to create efficiency but it was a very interesting kind of experience that was unique in the fact that it seemed like all right if if when we are certainly and i think people can i'm sure resonate with this idea that technology is becoming a being in and of its in and of itself so like that not only is on our phones and on our computers and in our algorithms and but it's there's an egregore a, a massive archon of technology itself and this is one that you know you're not going to be able to magically defeat it with love because it, it it appears in my in my encounter with it like it didn't give a shit you know like it was just not it that was its very nature was that it didn't so i think the strategy for that has to be really going deeply internally into the into our self-relationship with it and the only way to actually you know bring that under control is to bring our own relationship you know because we are emotional beings our own relationship with our own piece of that archon under control yep that brings up a few points remember shiva is the world crusher Mm -hmm. that is one of his aspects so you were just seeing another face of the shiva archetype the shiva egregore and you're right this techno archon that's out there completely emotionless completely devoid of that and it has no way of communicating emotionally. Another example of what I'll give with that is different forces of nature that we can anthropomorphize into ethereal beings because in a sense they are nature spirits. You get a spirit of the air who is an absolute genius at balancing air pressures. And it can balance upper atmospheric and lower atmospheric pressures like instantly. But it's very volatile, very violent, and it creates a tornado. And this spiritual being has no idea what a house is, doesn't care what a house is, doesn't care that you're living in the house and you need it for shelter. It just knows about balancing air pressure 
And that's all it's going to do. And your house is in the way. Oh, well, whatever, huh? Let's get this thing balanced. And that's the mm. same way with the Techno Archon. But because that Techno Archon is created by the collective unconscious of humanity, we do have to be aware of three types of transhumanism. And I'm actually not an, op an opponent of transhumanism because, of course, there is transhumanism by uh, circuitry integration, right? We're going to get computer chips in our bodies eventually. As much as we're going to fight against it, we can't really stop it. That's going to happen eventually. Just, you know, like VHS and porn. You just can't stop it. It's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Another form of transhumanism, of course, is genetic manipulation. You're not going to stop it. People are going to keep using that CRISPR technology. It's going to happen. It's going to affect what it means to be human. But there is the most important part of transhumanism, knowing that these other parts are probably inevitable unless something really wonky and major happens. We have to be aware of the third form of transhumanism. By understanding that in human nature, we are prone to avoid disaster by focusing on it. That's what kept our Paleolithic ancestors alive. They knew something bad was going to happen, therefore they focus on bad. That's why we have a bias towards negative things. You know, that whole 80-20 rule is 80% of our thoughts may be on how negative something is and how bad it is, even though it's occurring 20% in the world. That's what kept people alive. That's why we have a natural hardwiring to be biased toward the negative, towards how things could go wrong. But our transhumanism means we can recognize that that's the basic hardwiring, our paleolithic hardwiring, and we can evolve beyond that. We have this prefrontal cortex, which no other animal on the planet has, which gives us the ability to override emotions, to give new meaning and purpose to things in the world. So we can look back at past situations and give new meaning to it. And when we embrace that form of transhumanism, where we move beyond the negative hardwiring, where we move into this state of like possibility and reality, we move from this, oh my God, what are you going to do to me? To, oh, how can we help? When we move beyond, you know, like social Darwinism and have to have this constant competition to cooperation and collaboration, when we learn to start to oppose the archons, through anarchy. Remember, anarchy is not against government, against control, against ruler. It means you can exist without it. It's not anti-archy. It's anarchy. You don't need, you know, Jello Biafra once said, we need to rise above the need for cops and laws. That's in that transhumanism. And when we are collectively working at that third level of transhumanism, then that mecha archon will still be cold and efficient and calculating and doing what it does but it will not have a negative impact on the evolution of humanity because we have that third form of transhumanism moving into that higher state of being collectively. Mm. And this is within our control and we don't need CRISPR and we don't need a, a computer chip to actually participate in this, in this evolution. And, yeah. um, and I, think, I think a lot of the reason why people are, are worried about the former two is just really i mean the mechanisms of control control has become it's also this own arconic you know tyrannical yes. force that exists here and giving the that force which has been expressed through a variety of different egregores of pharmaceuticals to governments to whatever wherever you want to point the you know point the flashlight and and see the you know see some of this energy of control and, and tyranny that's been exposed recently I think the idea of any further control is is like uh oh, and also the the 
this kind of idea, the hubris that we've shown in this whole, you know, kind of Western medicine model of just creating a pill for this, a shot for this, a thing for this, which is saying like, oh, nature, you did it all wrong and we'll get, we'll get it all right. It's not seeing like the, the wisdom in the, in the kind of amazing potential that we have now that doesn't mean that antibiotics don't work and that you know if you get a staph infection you shouldn't go in and and get it treated and you know of course we understand the benefits of it but we've also seen kind of the hubristic overextension of that so i think it gives people a a good healthy amount of trepidation towards these different things that are coming in because it almost feels like we need the third level of transhumanism before we can actually control and actually make decisions correctly about the first two versions of it you know it's like we need a evolution of consciousness before we can actually decide how to apply the technology but we're not gonna you're right we're not going to stop the technology it's a force that's going to continue to churn it's about can we evolve faster so that we can be ahead of the technology so that we're actually steering the technology in a way that's supportive of our magical lives rather than oppressive to it Absolutely. And that's why it's so important to be doing whatever the work is that you're doing. You know, if it's working on yourself to achieve a higher state of cognitive awareness, or you are working to improve your health and physiology, you are working to improve your well being in whatever way it is. You know, it's that whole Epicurean philosophy of, I will endure now for the bigger payoff later. Mm. You know, I'm going to hit the gym now and eat correctly now so that I have a better, healthier life ongoing. I'm going to forego this. I will hate them and I'm going to destroy them because right now they're threatening me to doing your inner work and going, oh, I see they're coming from a place of fear and worry just as I was before. So we're doing that inner work individually to affect that collective unconscious. And it doesn't matter what the work is that you're doing. It just matters that you're doing the work and that you're doing it consistently and you're being with it. And it is working. You know, in the time of the French Revolution, it was great fun and it was an awesome entertainment. And it's horrible to say this, but people would love and gather on the street to do this, to put a cat into a cage and slowly lower it into a fire and revel in the howls and scream of this poor cat. Today, that is so thoroughly reprehensible. We can't even imagine doing something like that. It causes such a visceral reaction in me to even think about doing something like that. There's no way I would do that. And Outside of the news media, if we look at the statistics, we are in the most peaceful time in human history ever, and it is continuing to be so. Despite the little wars popping up, despite things happening here or there, we are getting better and better, and that is coming from all of us continuing to do our work individually, whatever the work is, because that's how we're going to defeat the Archons. That's how we're going to reprogram the Egregores is by what we are tuning in individually and what's going to do it to make our world right for us at the authentic level. Mm. Yeah, it's great to get that historical perspective, you know, because it was not that long ago that, I mean, French Revolution wasn't that long ago and where, you know, public beheadings, you know, and and I didn't even know about this public torture of animals and these ideas. I mean, those were feeding, of course, arconic energies, that were prevalent in the time and so the influence of within and without was was there and present but that's of course it still exists in small pockets and you know individuals who are very deeply troubled who still get sadistic pleasure out of certain things and certainly it exists in 
you know, the human trafficking and, you know, yes. all of the different, the dark, the dark edges, pedophilias, the dark edges of all of the human sexual impulses and the sadism involved in that. And this kind of vampiric archon that exists as woven into that. Like, I'm not saying we're in the clear, but if you look, right. you know, we're not that far, you know, not that far back was the Inquisition. And I mean, where sadism was state and God sponsored, you know, yep. in the most horrific ways you could imagine. Oof. And and it's just, you can see this steady, even though it might not look like it, if you look at one specific instance, you can see this steady improvement of, and steady change of these external forces as we've changed our internal understandings. Exactly. And we are continuing to do that. I mean, and it's weirdly enough to say that sometimes these dark forces that are going on are actually part of the solution. I'll give you a really, really weird example of that. We can think of General Mao, right? The, the Chinese general that went into Tibet and caused a lot of slaughter, a lot of torment, a lot of upset. He would be operating, let's say, off of that arconic energy, creating that torment, creating that whole awful state. But if you were to ask the Dalai Lama what he thinks of General Mao, he would say, oh yeah, he's a Buddha in disguise. Because at that point in the world, Tibetan Buddhism was locked into Tibet. You'd have to go to these isolated monasteries. You'd have to be initiated into the process, which was impossible for an outsider to do. General Mao came in, disrupted everything. People from Tibet flew all over the world. And now everybody knows about Tibetan Buddhism. People know about trans, uh, the TM. Oh boy, I can't believe Transcendental Meditation. meditation. Right. Mm -hmm. People know about these processes. People know how to do this work. That could not have happened without something like Mao and that the whole tragedy that he created. The world is a hugely beneficial, much better place because of that tragedy. Isn't it weird to think of it that way? Yeah, and, and extremely heretical, too, because, of course, we have to acknowledge the pain and make that, you know, you could say that to someone whose family was slaughtered, and they'd be like, fuck Awful. you. And exactly. like, you're right. Like, you're right. Like, absolutely, yep. you're right. Absolutely. And this other thing is true, you know, and so we have yep. to be able to hold paradox. And I think that's a, that's a sign of, you know, an evolving consciousness is that you're able to hold paradox. You're able to understand that that act was absolutely evil and despicable and and completely you know created intense suffering and also on some level it created another effect another counter effect to that force that was also incredibly beautiful and powerful you know i mean kwang duke that image of kwang duke sitting which proved proved something about the human spirit to the whole world when he, kwang duke lit himself on fire self-immolated without even flinching Right, like without flinching in the middle of the street and it was captured on film and on camera. You know, like that changed the world. That image went around the world as a meme. That image went around the world and all of a sudden people were like, holy shit, something more is possible and powerful. And of course, without that force of oppression, then that moment wouldn't have happened and, and lots of other things wouldn't have happened. And we can look at this moment in time and, and imagine this same thing happening all of these forces of control and tyranny that are being exposed and these efforts to try and control us and dehumanize us and polarize us like this is going to yes first of all it, you can look at it on the 
on like just a literal plane straight out. Yeah, it sucks and it's bad and it's and we should you know resist it. However, there's another side that's saying, look at what else it's creating. Look at the people it's bringing together. Look at the other forces that are being galvanized and look at what it may end up creating. You know, and so it's that's where the optimism comes from. Actually, is not saying like, yeah, these forces aren't that bad. They're not that tough. They're not that. It's like, no, I just trust that there's a natural counterbalance. And as these forces push in, there's something else that's going to rise to balance it. And that's why I can still look at this world now and be optimistic. And that doesn't mean that I won't be personally wiped out, but fundamentally like optimistic for the future of the world. And that's why I tell people the answer to defeating these archonic forces, to defeating these negative influential things or whatever we want to call them that are out there, all the egregores, the archons, the tulpas that are creating a negative force in the world. The secret to defeating them is not through combat. We don't go and blow the piss out of the other side. We don't go and, you know, eradicate an entire people because they're promoting certain ideologies. We don't destroy and topple governments because we don't agree with them. We don't go right in the street, killing and maiming and destroying because that's feeding into the archonic values. That's feeding into that negativity. Instead, what you want to do is create, make something, build something, and see how it how it sticks, how it lasts. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But if you were to insert something into the collective unconscious through its creation, through its actualization, it will, just like that wine into the water, displace that negativity. That old system that doesn't work will fall away because you are creating something new. Now, I'm not saying this is the case with cryptocurrency. I haven't bought into it. I haven't invested into it, but I'm keeping my eyeballs on it. Like mm. people are screaming about how the fiat economy is just destroying the world and how the the Federal Reserve is destroying economies and governments. And I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe not. But now you have this decentralized cryptocurrency coming in. Yeah. Maybe that is creating something new that can displace the old. I don't know yet. It's too soon to tell. But that's how we defeat those archonic forces is to create and to constantly create. Like when you created on it, that was helping to defeat some of these archonic forces by creating something that worked, that helped people. So we need to be building things, not finding a way to blowing a piss out of the other side or destroying mm -hmm. this or destroying that. Because imagine this, and this is very real. Imagine there's genocide going on in a country. Two sides are just killing each other, just devastatingly killing each other because they're under the control of some sort of archonic forces killing each other because I'm going to call you this name and I'm going to call you this name and now we kill each other. So we're going to bring in the peacekeepers who are now destroying both sides. You're still feeding the same archonic force. Yeah. You're still bringing in the same chaos, destruction and everything. But where does that lead in the future? It's up to us what we do with it, and what we do yeah. and how we work with that energy. Yeah, I think uh, Graham Hancock wrote a book called War God. It's a it's a fiction book, and it's such a cool premise. And the premise is that as Cortez and the conquistadors were marching their way towards the Aztec capital, uh, they were burning people at the stake. You know that they would encounter that were heretics, you know, human sacrifice. And then they and meanwhile the Aztecs had heard that there was, you know, in their mythology Quetzalcoatl, which was going to you know bring this destruction to their you know, to, to what they had. And, and Moctezuma was, got scared and he started sacrificing people by the tens of thousands. And his premise in the book was that they were both actually worshiping the same 
the same arconic energy. In the Aztec tradition, it was Huitzilopochtli, the, the hummingbird god. Interesting that hummingbird was their war and gruesome blood sacrifice god, but uh, and hummingbirds are so sweet and full of nectar. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but anyways, that's that's the way it was for them. And uh, and then of course the god, the god of the Bible that the conquistadors believed in that would sanction human sacrifice, burning people at the stake. It was the same. It was the same archon. And then they both they con you know they contacted each other and slaughtered each other. And meanwhile, that archon was just throwing a party. It was yep. like, well, look at this. Look what we did. We got both sides, both both on my team. And now they get to both. It just increased the volume on this archonic energy. And that's the thing, you know. That's the that's the story to avoid is to is to make sure that we don't under any under any circumstance feed this. Now that doesn't mean that in the very specific, someone comes in to go, you know rape my wife in the house that you know i'm not going to pull my gun and shoot him i will you know like 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 you have the right to protect yourself a rose has its thorn for a reason you know what i mean but but nonetheless like that's not the that's not the way in the macro while it could be the way in the specific in a very you know unique circumstance like the the ability to protect yourself like it's not the way in this energetic and in landscape in this the big the big battle this kind of vedic arjuna bhagavad gita moment that it feels like we're about to face which is like how do we how do we fight this big battle that's that's approaching well we fight it by transcending the transcending the idea of battle itself yep that's exactly it and that's the complexity of being human being you're absolutely right on the boots in the ground in the moment you betcha i'm going to be vicious to protect the loved ones around me absolutely mm-hmm. and at the global bigger picture of things that's where we can get into trouble because, you know, some of us, you know, people who have endured some of these traumas in the world and we're like you were saying earlier, it's like we could say, oh, I hear the, see the big picture benefit of this thing. But on that boots in the ground moment, there's going to be lasting PTSD, chronic yeah. trauma from it. And it's horrible and it's awful. And that's why we don't perpetuate those cycles by doing what the other side is doing. We don't say, well, they're going to do it. So I'm going to do it first or, well, they did it to me. So I'm going to do it back to them. And it's like, no, no, no. Just like when you encounter the world crusher, it's not love your enemies, but it's like, uh, I'm going to keep this open. I'm going to be aware. I'm going to try to understand where you're coming from. And I'm going to create this big thing that you can't destroy that helps us out. And when you're ready, maybe you can be invited to be a part of it instead of, you know, me fighting to destroy you. Maybe we can work on this together eventually. Mm -hmm. Well, we're coming to a close here, and I think it was actually before the podcast you mentioned this, and I'm interested in understanding you know, mythology in a different way. You mentioned the word jinn, which is like a, a, like a genie, and you yep. see this appear in all, kinds of different, in all kinds of different ways, and for the life of me, I couldn't understand what this is other than a fairy tale. Right, so I was hoping as a final little little nugget, a little bonus round nugget, you could explain what your understanding of this energy and what it really actually means. It is a cultural interpretation of the same kind of energies that we're talking about. You know, when we get to the the Arabic uh, cultures on this, they are describing these negative beings that have influence over us in one form or another. If I got the mythology right, they were fire beings that were around before humanity existed and then developed a form of jealousy that God loved humanity the way that he did. And so they had this sort of vengeance plot and tactic against humanity. 
And other people will say that's not always the case. They are these higher level beings. They are these other forces that are out there. You can't really trust them, but if you're careful, you can work with them, which again goes right back to the egregore thing that for whatever reason, some of these get contained into a container, you know, like a spirit bottle or a lamp for the mythology's sake. They get contained, which is not a good idea to lock up an entity in any sort of a thing because they're going to come out and they're probably going to be a little angry and upset and want some sort of vengeance, <laughs> which is where we get those tale of the djinn. But the djinn are manifesting in modern cultures, and, and I really hate seeing these, these footages of this, but they are basically back alley exorcisms going on. You know, people flopping around, cussing, puking, that they need this negative entity removed from them. And the mainstream religion doesn't really sanction it. So they're going to their versions of magic users sort of thing to exercise the djinn out of people when it's most likely not. But still, that's how the djinn are manifesting in the world today as these negative entities. And the reason why it's important to look at that is every culture is going to have their own lens of interpreting what these beings are, why they're here, what they're doing. And if we get to the mystical layer to just see what that energy is, what these beings are, we can remove the names. We can remove the depictions and the descriptions to see exactly how these beings are working at our inner belief level, at our emotional level, at our energetic level. So it, it might be a djinn to one culture. It might be a demon to another. It might be a thurs to still another. But they're all the same thing with just different words. Mm. It seems like the... Um there's a there's a connection between and also the jinn and the genie the ability of this thing to grant a wish but when i've encountered this wish granting force it did feel very like demonic and it 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 demanded a very steep price it's this classic mm -hmm. faustian myth like you know mm -hmm. and i think maybe the disneyized version of course you know will smith as the genie and well that's <laughs> that's a great that's a great situation right there you know and some very strong magic to contain it and to give you authority over this ultimately wild force of power um and and that fantasy of having having the power over chaos i think is like a is more of a fantasy than a representation of anything because that this kind of everything has a cost it almost feels like it's it's part of first principles you know like Things have things have a cost, an energetic cost, and, and sometimes in the field of love, the cost is actually immediately replenished, and it becomes this virtuous cycle, this this positive feedback loop where it actually isn't cost, but it still takes the in, the intention and the energy, which you could call a cost. It's just a pleasurable cost that is self fulfilling, and that's ultimately where you want to be. But it seems like probably the more appropriate way to understand this is that you know these are. Tr these are tricky tricky ways in which we can at least at the very least convince ourselves that if we pay this steep price we will get this great power you know and 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 this is whether that's actually again external or internal this understanding of this first principle of of reciprocity of of the requirement for a cost for force actually creating some kind of result you know, you pay this, and this is in many magical traditions, you pay this deep sacrifice and then you get this powerful reward. It was depicted in the in Guy Ritchie's King Arthur, of course, with uh, with the villain. You know, it's like you, you pay this steep price, you get this this burst of power. And I guess that's a that's a much broader mythos that, you know, that exists. And whether it exists in the external, 
certainly you can imagine that people if they believed it if they believed that they could sell their soul for some power and then they believed that they had this power then they would believe themselves depraved of a soul but also believe themselves you know within the bounds of the you know with the ability of this new power that they created and so therefore abracadabra you know it would be it would be a part of their a part of their reality so just talking through it it starts to kind of help me understand like why this thread is so common in uh in you know in our mythological zeitgeist well let's look at that transactional nature with some of these entities if it is something that you have to give up in order to gain something that there's a price to pay to get this that's not the kind of transaction you want to interact with right is it's taking away something from you so that you get something that's not in resonance with who you are already otherwise it would be drawn to you <laughs> there's another type of transaction and this is what i've taught in the norse tradition where the havamal says best not to offer too much for a gift demands a gift and the way people have interpreted that is when we go to bloat when we go to a ritual and we give offerings of food and mead it's more like hey you out there do this for me well that's transactional it doesn't mm-hmm. really work that way The way that it works, this other non-transaction, is what is it that I have already got? What are the things that are working for me now? And how do I emphasize gratitude for that? And how do I get more of that because I'm tuning into that one? Because that's another one of the rules out there, that similarities attract and perpetuate, right? If you're focusing on what you have and what's working for you and you have that gratitude for it and you're focusing on that, you are going to get more of that. And so it's no longer transactional. It's what I call the reverse battery effect. When you tap into that energy and you use that energy, you get more of it because it's already authentically yours and you're resonating with people and beings that are already having that same energy. So you're tapping into it. You're getting more and more and more of it the more you use of it. So you're getting a lot of this back. So it's not transactional that you have to get rid of this to get rid of that. You're tapping into what you've already got. You're building more of that. And suddenly you're you're abundant and you're prosperous going, wow, where is this coming from? It's because it's already there. You're just tapping into more of what you already have. Mm. Yep, well said. Well, all right, so one final piece of advice for people who want to take this you know, very esoteric and also practical discussion into, into a practice. You know, and let's say you want to harness the, the power to create your own thought forms, to create your own you know, energetic resonance with the thing that you're trying to attract. What are the practices? Do you like mantra work? Do you like, what are some of the practices that you like to actually start to generate these thought forms and these energies around you? Um, yeah, what would you recommend? Uh, the first best thing to do constantly working on is what I call building meta consciousness. It's a state of consciousness beyond our regular normal consciousness. It's where you can be aware of your awareness. You're conscious of your consciousness. So you know what your thoughts are. You know what your emotions are. You know how your body feelings, what your energy state is. And so you have this inner observational awareness of who you are and what you are. And that will tell you to be aware of what's coming in externally. And then when you're aware of that external thought, you can either tune in or tune out. Metaconsciousness also gives you the power of interruptive thinking. So you get that thought going, wow, I just suck at this. I'm no good at this. You can go, wait, no, 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 no. I'm much better at this because look at the thing I did there. Look at the thing I did there. I can do this. This is great. So you have that power of interruptive thinking, interruptive feeling, which that prefrontal cortex does that. 
So you're having that day where you're like, God, this just sucks. I feel awful. I'm scared. I don't know if I can do this. Well, remember the difference between fear and excitement is just a breath. So acknowledge that and go, yep, it's here. I'm feeling that fear. And how amazing would this be if I went and just did that? If that is coming from an external entity, an external being, by doing that interruptive process, by doing that inner thinking, that inner awareness, you're taking away that control and you're building that control for you. And it becomes that reverse battery effect. The more you do it, the more powerful it gets, the more you're generating that energy around that around you. And that energy becomes alive with its own existence. And it starts to fuel who you are becoming, constantly becoming. So it really starts with that inner awareness, that inner observation, and then doing that interruptive processing from that metaconscious state so that you can create that world around you. And of course, energy hygiene, you know, working on shifting your own energy state, doing some energy clearing, pulling off attachments, because we all get these bottom feeder attachments that are easy. Just go, plop, gone. I don't need you sucking my energy. Get out of here. And work on your interrelationship skills, you know, with other people, what you deserve for you. That will not only affect your relationships with other people in this world, but your relationships with the spiritual beings out there. And it will help you take place, take your place and your control over your world. So it's not a quick, easy fix. It takes some time to work on. So give yourself that patience and that work to do that. So that's my advice on that. Well said, my brother. For anybody who wants to connect more with you, check out what you're doing or maybe reach out directly. Where should they go? Uh, my website is kadrick.com. You'll find right at the top of the page a link to take a paranormal awareness test to see what your awareness is on this one. But you'll also find a link so that we can uh, you know, have some one-on-one sessions to work on this stuff. Also, you'll find a tab because I'm building a paranormal training school so you can learn how to interact with these beings, so you can shift your energy. So we can either work one-on-one on that stuff or you can get some online courses and some online meditations too that you can just download and work with. So yeah, go to kedrick.com or look for me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. I'm everywhere. All you need is my name and you can access, access me <laughs> everywhere. Magical word. Magical word. Just say Kedrick three times. And Just say Kedrick it. three times, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my brother. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Kedrick Olson. Once again, if you're interested in joining us at Arcadia Festival, go to fitforservice.com slash Arcadia with a K. We have many podcast guests as speakers, including Charles Eisenstein, Matthias Stefano, Zach Bush, and Blue, as well as a stunning musical lineup, including Troy Boy, Dr. Fresh, Emancipator, Glitch Mob, Parangi, Satsong. The list just goes on and on. So I hope to see you guys there at this revolutionary festival in Alpine, Wyoming. Once again, fitforservice.com slash Arcadia. I love you guys. I'll see you next week.